Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. On today's show, we have a conversation between authors Vincent Toro and Willie Perdomo. Vincent Toro's new poetry collection, Tertulia, examines immigration, economics, colonialism, and race via the sublime imagery of music, visual art, and history. Willie Perdomo is a prize-winning poet whose new collection, The Crazy Bunch, chronicles a weekend in the life of a group of friends coming of age in East Harlem at the dawn of the hip-hop era. Now let's join these authors as they discuss their backgrounds, inspirations, and the power of poetry. So, what's up, everyone? My name is Vincent Toro, and I am here talking to the one and only Willy Perdomo. We're going to talk about poetry, literature, arts, our books. Um, so I thought I'd kick it off with a question. So um, a couple months ago, Willie, you and I did a talk um, where we were kind of talking about the New Eureka tradition. But at the end of that conversation, you said something, man, that I've been like hearing in my sleep, which kind of was like a, a moment of enlightenment for me. You said, um, in, in talking about like structuring your work, you said that you don't write poems anymore, you write books. And that really kind of like, like I didn't just, it just blew me up. So I'm wondering if we could start with you talking about that. Cause I, you see it in Crazy Bunch. Crazy Bunch has these incredible poems that stand on their own, but it really does function like a, like a, a, a book. Like, you don't get the whole experience unless you're reading the whole book together. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just like articulate or elaborate a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, first of all, uh, Vincent, it's, it's, it's great to see you again, bro. That, that, yeah. that we're able to kind of uh, continue the conversation that we had uh, so many weeks ago. Um, and congratulations on the book, Tertulia. Uh, Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Um, and uh, my name is Willie Perdomo. I'm also one of the, I'm, in, I'm on the Penguin Poets crew. Uh, uh, as Vincent mentioned, this book called The Crazy Bunch. Um, yeah, I think this, this, this whole idea of me not writing poems, uh, writing books started um, with the essential hits of, of Shorty Bong Bong, I think. Um, and it was a matter of, first of all, you start thinking about where can I send these poems as one-offs, right? So, and I couldn't find any poems that I could send as one-offs. Subse subsequently, after the book was published, they were, you know, used uh, on, on, on several kind of poetry sites and so on. But um, it's like, if I, if I don't have the structure for the book, then I don't, I, I can't, I can't fill it, fill it in with, with the poems that I need. Um, I think it's important to understand that, yeah, you know, the, the, you take, for example, the poems in Shorty Bong Bong that was also published by Penguin as well. Um, there's the, the Puerto Rico poem where Shorty goes to Puerto Rico and, you know, he bugs out and he starts seeing, you know, Columbus and he starts thinking about revolution and uh, independence and all that. I had written those poems way before Shorty Bong Bong was published, but I had nowhere to put them. I didn't know where they fit until the concept for Shorty Bong Bong um, um, appeared. Crazy Bunch the same way, right? I, I'm glad that you got this sense that somehow um, that the, it, the book works out as a whole. You need to read the entire book from front to end to understand why the poetry cops are there, uh, what's happening over that weekend, the rituals that these kids have, the tragedy that, that, that occurs. 
And, um, you know, it feels like I'm thinking more than a storyteller than someone trying to book, put uh, a few poems together and say, this is my book. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, that's important. So, you know, if, if I don't see it whole, I can't start with the pieces, but I usually have the pieces that kind of lead to the whole, if you, if you get my drift, you know what I'm saying? Like I, when those fragments that I have, once I start to add them up, I start to see something develop. But with the crazy bunch, it was easy. It was one question. It was, it was Calito saying, yo, when are you going to write a book about the crew? And it goes off, you know? Uh, so that sense of the storytelling tradition, as we talked about that, that in during that conversation, the idea of the New Yorican poet being, at least one facet of the New Yorican poet being, um, you know, the troubadour telling the, 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 the story of the street to the street. Um, and I'm interested, though, you know, in how that actually fits into uh, your work, not necessarily the, the, the troubadour aspect, but the way you chose to structure Tertulia in acts, right? Like how, how that actually uh, came about for you. Yeah, I, well, I think, as you know, I'm also a playwright. So, so I'm always thinking in uh, the dramatic sense and in action, um, not necessarily always in the in a vein of storytelling, but the the way you might see action cinematically or or in a drama. So, again, I was working from a different place. I spent many years writing these individual poems, um, and I just did an interview recently where I talk a little bit about that. A lot of these poems were written in the classrooms with my students. Uh, you know, as you probably know, when you have a heavy teaching load, sometimes you just got to steal time where you can. So if I make up my students uh, write, then I'm like, all right, I'm going to write with them as long as no one's getting out of hand, you know. And so later on, it was uh, like a, a process of looking at this pool of work that I've collected and finding shape for it kind of after the fact to a degree. Mm -hmm. But but there were... I think there was some conceptual things that I found in, in common and, and probably you could see it throughout the thread of all my work, which that I, I do see the, the poems as being kind of energy activated, something in movement, right? Movement's important to me in a poem. And when I finally devised the concept of wanting the book to be this, this tertulia, this, you know, disparate voices and ideas and concepts and images kind of coming together at someone's house for a party and being in dialogue and, you know, performing, then I realized that I wasn't really writing chapters, right, or sections as we often talk about in, in, uh, in poetry books, but that they felt like acts, right, that there was a kind of movement happening in stages. So once there was like, or even like I, I had another interview, I talked about a cipher circle. So once like we've gone around in the cipher and it comes back, then we're kind of in, a, in another act. Um, so I think I, I was thinking in terms of that, that the, the performativity of the poems and structuring around, and then the traditional format of theater is actually five acts, right? right. That, that there's a narrative arc of five points. So I was kind of playing with that idea. It's loose. I don't know that, you know, I think in fact, your book probably has a cleaner dramatic arc in theater like it could probably be turned into a play the way that you structured your book. But I do think there's kind of a loose, you know, introduction to conflicts and then a rising tension. And then you get in the middle, a lot of the stuff explodes in the middle of the book and then kind of a slowly coming to terms with, some, you know, resolving some of those conflicts in the book. 
Yeah, I think you know those arcs when you can, if you can impose on, you can impose them onto your onto the book, right? That's something that happened to me. I think in conversations with 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 Paul for sure when we were going back and forth, and uh, you know Paul Slovak, the editor of, up at Penguin Random House, and he was like, you know, the book needs an arc. So I spent like a month in California giving uh, the book an arc, and I'm also interested in the role that other people have in that storytelling process. So it's just not me writing all the poems all the time, right? Uh, you hear from Fat Phil, you hear from Josephine, <laughs> you hear from Shemeca, you know what I'm saying? Like you hear from a whole bunch of people throughout that weekend. Um, we're here celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month uh, for Books Connect Us. And um, it wasn't until uh, Professor, uh, you probably know him, Arnaldo Malare from, uh, from Fordham University. He pointed out that um, the Shorty Bong Bong was the first book on the Penguin Poet series by a Latinx author. And then after that, oh, wow. I think J. Michael Martinez had just come through. And then now you, 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 you in the house as well now, right? But I'm, I'm bringing that up in terms of our role in, um, in poetry, our role in uh, being poets in the Puerto Rican community, um, and how the diaspora kind of fits in that. Because I see you know, our work kind of intersecting, right? When you say those voices, those pieces, right? Um, and, and the pieces and the fragments seems to be uh, like a big motif in uh, Puerto Rican writing, you know? And I don't want to generalize for sure, but we're all, we all thinking about what it means to be uh, <clears throat> from here as opposed from the island. There's always that yeah. thought, that conversation, but sometimes it's split, right? Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that and how what you were thinking about when you were writing Tertulia, because most of, most of the crazy bunch happens in New York, but it's a very, I like to say Puerto Rican, New York book as well. Right. So I'm interested in that. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I think like in my first book, Stereo Island Mosaic, that book was about, um, I think that was very much a diasporican book. Like that book was about me reaching back and finding, finding the history and 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 even like negotiating some of the ugly parts of colonialism and how like my question with that book was like how did colonialism make me um i think this book is uh is a little different in that i was really almost intentionally being globalistic in my thinking for me i thought okay i already looked for this expanse in the first book of latinidad now, now how, did, how can I reach out even farther into that expanse, right? To uh, provoke the impossible, as Glissant says, that I've been like quoting constantly recently. And so um, I, I think that my, what I really wanted to do in this book, and I don't know if it comes through, is I wanted to find those connections between those things that are kind of known as Latino or Latinx markers now, and Latin American markers, and those things that that reach forward, right? Actually, Jay Markle and I have a lot of conversations about this that we we both feel like marginalized Latinxes in a lot of ways because we don't always embody what's like stereotypically seen in the U.S. Mm -hmm. as like Latino men. And our big one is like we both love rock and roll music. Like Jay Michael has a whole thing about being like he's like a heavy metal lover, which by the way is a very Latino thing. Like Mexicans and Latin Americans love heavy metal, yeah. um, but like a lot of people outside of our communities may not know that. So, you know, that's why in the book, I had these poems that are cinephrastics that are like looking at like, you know, films from like, you know, other parts of the world 
and I'm using references and iconography from like parts of Latin America, not just Puerto Rico and the Caribbean or New York. And so I think that was the goal was to try to even like lengthen the bridges that I was building in the first book, if that makes sense. Yeah. I want to kind of jump back to your book for a minute or actually your work as a whole. One thing that I, I even think about like, you know, your earliest work, like stuff from where a nickel cost a dime. One of the things that always stuck out to me in your work, the reason why I think it, it blows up in classrooms, like long before I ever met you, I was always about like, like Willie Perdomo's poems were like the go-to in the classroom because like you knew that they were gonna, this, the students were gonna bite, right? Like students just love your work, whether I'm teaching middle school, high school or college. Um, and I think that one of the reasons why is uh, what you already kind of alluded to was voice. Um, your poems are so populated with other people's voices. Um, and again, like in how I work, my, I think I'm coming from other things. I'm more interested in symbols and images that I'm kind of collecting and weaving. But for you, I hear all these people, these characters and their voices. Um, and so I, I don't have a specific question, but I'm, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know, how, the, how you tap into that, right? Because I talk to my students and even in my theater classes, listening is so important, but it's not enough to just listen. There's something that you're doing with those voices in your work that, that bring them to life. I don't know if you could talk about that. I think part of it is a, it's a natural occurrence. I think it happens organically, but I think it's definitely informed by, you know, the poets that you start um, reading um, as, as you, the formation of, of you becoming a poet uh, starts to occur, right? So um, if, if I'm reading Langston Hughes as, 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 a, as, a, as a teen or even in my early college years, what I know for sure is that Langston has his ear to the street, right? I can, I can, I can hear the people in the neighborhood talking. Um, if I'm reading Gwendolyn Brooks, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing someone who's clearly opening the window and just kind of observing, right, what's in the neighborhood. The idea of, of, um, of storytelling, and I have been reading um, recently some essays by uh, uh, Benjamin, Walter Benjamin, but there's this one thing about storytelling that he says that the novel basically destroyed storytelling, if I'm getting mm. this right, because the novel is written in a kind of solitude by itself. The real storytelling process is really the oral storytelling process. You, if you tell a story, you should be able to pass that story on to someone else. They should be able to pass that story on to someone else. And I think my books work like that, right? At first, it's this one kind of singular speaker introducing you to this neighborhood. But my mentor, Raymond Patterson, has said, it's not like you're writing different poems you're writing one poem from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to understand what he was trying to say. He's not saying I'm writing the same poem over and over again. It's that the poem just keeps expanding from where Nickel Cross the Dime all the way to the Crazy Bunch. Because if you look at the Crazy Bunch, Brother Lowe, I mean, if you look at where Nickel Cross the Dime, Brother Lowe appears and where Nickel Cross the Dime. And you shoot all the way to, uh, the crazy bunch, Brother Lowe comes up again, right? Uh, so there's these people in this neighborhood, right? The poems or the poetic of place, the documentary poetics, if you will, that keep happening. The only interruption there probably was 
was Shorty Bong Bong, which was a kind of specific um, music-based book that also attempted to kind of leave the block and start thinking about the relationship to Body King, right? Uh, what that meant to be um, a musician in, in New York going back to uh, Puerto Rico. So that was the only interruption, but I think the voices are important. Too many times I think, you know, we can read a collection and you know that all those poems written by the same person has the name on the book, uh, all the poems sound the same, uh, all the poems look the same, right? Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I also, I think there's something to be said that um, to think about how does that voice on the stoop, you calling yourself a poet, how does that voice on the stoop add to the poem? In many ways, that it expands that poem, that it expands the story. It's always the person on the stoop or on the corner or whoever you're sitting next to hanging out in front of, you know, in front of the store, as we used to say, you know what I mean, that will kind of break something open for you. And I think it's important to honor that. You know, I think it's important to honor those voices that sometimes you'll never hear from, you know? So I think that went into, the, the, into, into the, my process. Again, I think it's an organic process, but I also think that, um, you know, the idea of the oral tradition is not highly valued sometimes, say, in academia. No, That's not a story, story. So if we start talking about classics, we never talk about the oral tradition. Well, maybe we need to reverse that. Maybe it starts with the oral tradition. Right in terms of how we actually tell <clears throat> stories, so it's something that I've been thinking about um, a lot um, in terms of how I put uh, these books together and, and the role that other people play. I think the storytelling process is indeed a community, a communal process. I mean, certainly we're we're, in, we're at the writing desk, right, writing these manuscripts by ourselves. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, it would be a lie to say that I, it was a solo venture, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting what you say, because uh, I just had a conversation about the oral tradition. I, I did it in conversation with Joshua Bennett, too, another right. Penguin poet. And I kind of posed to him, because he's writing this book on, on the history of spoken word. And we got, we got into it about this, because I was saying, you know, I remember really being like, criticized and, and fronting, you know, people fronting on me, as we would say, when I got to my MFA, because um, I was really an autodidact for the most part. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have the kind of training or education people had. I'm a working class Boricua from Washington Heights. There weren't books in my house. And uh, it was spoken word and hip hop. That was my entry point. And there was a lot, I could see people like raising their noses in the air about my reference points when I was in the MFA. So I brought it up to him and we were talking about, I, I theorized that a good deal of the snobbishness against the oral traditions is, is a kind of classism and racism. And, and of course, Joshua agreed with me, but Joshua said something that blew my mind too, though. He also said, yeah, but the other thing is that they're jealous, which I thought was, and I said, okay, you got to talk more about this. And he said, and he said, they can't do what we do. He said, a, a spoken word poet, may not have like, you know, the, the, the library in their head of like the classics that like some other writer who went to the right schools went to, but they can get on a stage and captivate a room full of people. And that's a power that like a lot of these scholars and poets that are coming out of the academy don't have, and there's jealousy. Anyway, I just had to uh, share that because I thought, 
that was another kind of mind blowing moment for me this summer. Cause I tend to not think about other people in those terms, but I do think in terms of systems. So I do see how like, cause when you talk about suppressing the oral tradition, you are talking about the histories of indigenous folk and, and, and black folk and brown folks, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I, you know, that stage page conversation has been around for as long as I've been writing poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the advent of the spoken word movement in the nineties. Oh yeah. There was a lot of shade cast on, on, on those of us who would step into the mic. And, and you know, I, I, I was still stepping to the bike with my manuscript, but it was still like spoken word, you know? Um, but I think Joshua might have a point, you know? I think the idea of being intimidated by that kind of art, uh, that kind of the force of that art, you know, the captivation of the audience. The flip side is that if you're not careful, you start to write to the audience, right? Yes. And that's where it gets a little uh, tricky because the applause can be, you know, uh, it can be uh it, it it can it can drag you in basically yeah 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 really, I, uh, seduce you go ahead i'm sorry brother no no i just i was because that has me thinking too so my own experience was i was very young when i first got on the scene and again not having certain kinds of training i felt myself kind of being pulled in that direction when i started doing the new Rican slams and my instinct because you know, and this is about my, my own like aesthetics and poetics is like, I'm interested in eclecticism and I, I'm all about not doing the same thing over and over again. I think that's why my two books feel the way that they do. So when I saw that, I, I literally just jumped off the, the train and that's when I got into theater. I was like, well, let me see what it's like to script from multiple voices or see what this looks like in, in a theatrical context. And then I joined a band. I had no training and I was like, well, let's see, you know, let's see what it's like to explore these things. And then I'll come back to my poetry with these things involved. And then I started working for an art school. And then I was like, well, let me look at my poems as a work of visual art. What does it mean if I put a poem up on a wall? How will that be treated? It's, 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 it's visual, physical texture. Um, and that was like a deliberate, like choice that I made because I didn't want to get caught in that place where I'm constantly like writing to an audience. For someone like me though, Willie, I risk the other thing, which is that I'm kind of a daydreamer and I'm always reaching way out. And so like, even in this recent book in Tertulia, uh, um, you see there's some really experimental stuff in there mixed with stuff that's more narrative in a voice like my mutiny at the elder care facility, which is about my bisabuela. And I think that has to do with like, uh, um, also just, you know, high concept stuff, Miles Davis reaching for the stars with the sound. And so that's another thing that I, as an artist, I kind of struggle with is like, I have all these influences and things that, are, that jazz me and I want to weave them together and I start reaching for the stars, but I don't want to go too far out so that I, like, I lose people or even lose myself, you know? Right. There's a danger that you don't come back, right? When you go too far out, you know? Um, but I think it's important for readers to also recognize that even though you and I are, you know, uh, Puerto Rican writers and from New York, and uh, that we are influenced by an array of culture and theory and uh, music. I mean, if 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 I told people that I'm a wannabe, you know, cineast, then uh, that that that's actually somewhat true. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Book reads for me the Crazy Bunch like a movie. Why? Because. I'm talking to my favorite movie of all time, Coolie High, right? Like, I want to be inside that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and so that has a part to it. And hip-hop, the whole idea of the cypher, as you say. I think there's so many influences that go in outside of just poetry itself and, and, and um, literature, right? That, 
that people need to kind of recognize. And that you can only find out when you're in dialogue with another writer, right? Who's yeah. reading inside uh, and reading it carefully, thoroughly, actively, you know? Um, so yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's important for sure. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny that you should say that because like, I, I think that again, outside of Latinx communities and even especially New York Latinx communities, there's preconceptions about who we are. And we really have to look at it. I, I'm hyper aware of the fact that we're living in a country that deliberately wants to place Latinxes in a certain place. Well, in cages for one, as we're seeing at the border. But there's a constant uh, move from certain leaders to minimize and reduce us. And that's done culturally. And you can see it in the media. Like we're still reduced to the same kind of roles on television and in films. Yeah. And then like, you know, someone who's not Latinx actually meets a Latinx person and they can't believe that we're into art films and classical music and that we, and that, you know, we, we don't just eat like, you know, mofongo, that there's more to us. And that's one of the, why one of the things I've been trying to do both in my work and in my classrooms is to show the Latinx's Puerto Ricanos as these eclectic beings, right. right? And I do think that we're naturally that way because if you look at the history of the Caribbean and you look at history of New York, these are two spaces that the whole world has come to. Like through co colonialism, like every ship from every port in the world landed in the Caribbean at some point. And so we became a Sancocho of influences in the Caribbean. And then New York, which is, you know, for a long time, the eco economic capital of the world, we also had influences from everywhere. And that's why like, you know, we're also into like Kung Fu films and Russian novels and, you know, that's part of who we are. And I try to, you know, communicate that to people, both in my work and outside, that we're not just this one stereotype or this one like, you know, the single story that Chimamanda talks about. Yeah, 3D all the way, brother. 3D all the way, I, for sure. Um, you know, the, the, the Latinx conversation, too, is also an interesting conversation if yeah. you're Caribeño, you know what I'm saying? Even if you're not a, a Caribeño that was born uh, in the Caribbean or, at, you know, in, I, um, in Puerto Rico, what does it actually mean to be Latinx if you are from the Caribbean? Yeah. Right? How does that actually fit into your definition? I remember on being on a, um, a talk for the, the anthology Latinx that I put together and with uh, Jose Olivares and, and Felicia Rose Chavez and um, uh, uh, Raquel Salas Rivera, he was, he was on, the, uh, on the talk. And he kind of was a little skeptical about the whole Latinx thing and how it applies to being Puerto Rican. And, and my wife is, is born from in Puerto Rico. She was born in, in, in Ponce. And she doesn't know what Latinx actually means either. You know what I'm saying? So she's trying yeah. to, I think folks are trying to really parse this, this definition out and, it, and, and how it plays into um, identity, the politics behind identity. Uh, it's really interesting. It's going to be, uh, I'm curious to see how it's going to come out in, 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 in work in the next, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, this idea of who we are and how we identify ourselves and how that's coming through in our work. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, there's certainly a reckoning happening in the Latinx communities that is coming through not only in that word, but just in the, you know, the politics that's happening right now. We, you know, we have a regime that's openly attacked 
you know, certain populations that are, you know, considered Latinx. And we see in our own communities, um, like, you know, Latinx people who really identify as white, even supporting those very same people. Um, there's all these Minutemen who are actually Latinos, right? There's, there's these contradictions in it because there's such a confusion about what it means to be Latinx and how we identify ourselves. So I think a reckoning's happening and I'm glad we're having the difficult conversations. Um, I think the, the one thing which Ed Morales brings up in the book Latinx uh, is that, you know, because Latinx people, whatever country we come from that's identified Latinx, we're coming from a different, uh, you know, a racially stratified society, but not one based on the kind of binary that the U.S. has, is that it's forcing the U.S. also in general to have conversations that push past the racial binary of black and white. Um, and I think that that's important. Um, and I also think he brings up, my, my wife and I talk about this stuff in the household a lot. Like I'm Puerto Rican, she's Cuban and Colombian, she's Afro-Latinx, you know, I'm more white presenting than she is. And uh, so we talk about what all this stuff means. And Ed Morales talks about strategic essentialism, that, that he, he mentions how whiteness is also a social construct. And that definition changes all the time whenever that group needs more voters, needs more economic power, right? Like Italians used to not be seen as white. And then they were like, oh, wait a minute, we need more voters in these areas. We need more economic power. You guys are white now. Right. And I think that he says that we should see Latinx that way too, that to call yourself Latinx is not to take away, you're not either or. It doesn't mean I'm not Puerto Rican, but it's a strategic essentialism to create a kind of political solidarity with groups that can help each other. Because the one thing we all have in common, which um, writers like Octavio Paz has brought up, is that like the one thing, and uh, Juan Gonzalez and Harvest of Empire, our commonality is imperialism. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and that's a powerful commonality to have, to think about. Um, I want to jump the tracks for a minute because I got also got really excited because the last time I talked to you, um, I there was chatter about there's a re-release of one of your older books. So I thought maybe you could talk about that for a minute and then maybe we could talk about some other books that we're reading. But uh, I'm really excited about this re-release. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could say something, something about yeah, it. Yeah, I just submitted the manuscript to it, man. And uh, it was a book I hated. <laughs> <laughs> It was a book that I was like, I, yeah, let, let it stay out of print. You know, the book is called Smoking Lovely. And uh, I just submitted the manuscript. And it was interesting. A few things happened along the way. I had to kind of revisit that time uh, in my life, you know, uh, uh, as a poet, but, you know, as a human being, too, and what I was going through, right, where I was falling in these kind of uh, dark holes, if you will, and how that led to, um, you know, a level of self-destruction that really wasn't healthy for my work, but I was able to kind of come out on the other side and write this book. What I did, though, was add a short play to it, uh, a 10-minute play, and it's called, uh, the play is called Mad Funny Style, and it takes place in a green room uh, in Amsterdam, and these poets are kind of ready to go on, and all this stuff happens uh, inside of the green room. And then uh, Udayong Noel, uh, professor at NYU, uh, wrote the introduction to it, and he really kind of contextualizes the book. Uh, in terms of um, the spoken word, not only spoken word movement, but East Harlem, New York City, starting to undergo a level of gentrification that is kind of, is popping up in the poems. Um, I switched some of the poems to uh, prose poems, which they were. Uh, I had to admit that some of those poems were uh, basically prose broken up into lines, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and they work much better 
uh, as prose poems. And I think really that's where uh, I, I can also find some music. I don't really need a line of poetry to find music in my language, even if I'm writing prose. Yeah. Uh, and then I wrote the afterword and had these, all these moments um, uh, thinking about why was it that I wasn't connected necessarily to this book? What was, what was I trying to do by, you know, putting it away? And then slowly but surely I've come to, to embrace it. Uh, and there was one moment that I mentioned, uh, cause I didn't know who my readers were necessarily. So we get a phone call in the house. This was a landline, mind you. And um, my wife says the, says the phone is for me. And I get on the phone and this baritone voice comes on and say, hey, Willie, uh, I got your book. I, I just want to tell you, man, I really dug your book. It was Gil Sky Heron. No! <laughs> no! Oh, my God. I asked him for a blurb. I don't know how I got his address, but the book got in his hands. He never got the blurb back to me, but I, he got a finished copy. And I was stuck, bro. I was like, oh, shit, thank you. And I hung up the phone. I was like, oh, baby, that was Gil Scott Heron, yo. I couldn't believe it. So stuff like that started making me think about who my readers were, where the book was landing, what was I trying to negate. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about it. It took a while for me to actually get to the pages, but once I got in, um, again, it was that it's that it's that moment of uh, you know, I'm a I'm a play I'm a play these two things, namely the play and the afterward, and then I'll tell you what it is later, you know. And uh, so yeah, man, I'm excited. And uh, what I know I know you sent me some poems recently. You sent me one poem. I think you're working on some stuff as well. Yeah, I'm in early stages because yeah. Um, yeah, I I think. I put a lot of energy into Tertulia, I think from, I finished really the manuscript for Stereo Alamosaic Mosaic out of my MFA, 2013. So I think in the seven years since, it was like thinking about this book. So I'm kind of at zero, which is a scary place, but, um, uh, and then COVID dropped. So my head is just in a different place for a while. But uh, I do have a couple ideas. I, uh, I want to get back to writing plays, although I don't know if plays will ever get produced again. So we'll see about that. It's going to work. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, be yeah. So, but, but that, you know, it's funny. I always go through like five-year cycles of like leaning towards poetry, leaning towards drama. Um, but I do have an idea. I've been, I've been scribbling some stuff about technology and social media. As you know, I'm like the last living person on earth without a cell phone. <laughs> and, and, and that's triggered, like, I think my first book poetry idea. So I, I've been sketching some broad stuff about that. Um, but honestly, everything is such, it's, I'm really just making clay right now, right? Like nothing's even sculpted at this point. Right on. Um, so it's scary, but it's exciting. I thought your book was visionary, man. And when you said, you know, I really put a lot into Dulia, it was evident, man. You know, it was evident that there was intentionality there and there was somebody who's really working on a level of kind of higher consciousness and, you know, as far as you wanted to go out, but you were able to kind of come back when you needed to. And so congratulations again on that. Thank you, man. That means a lot coming from you. It, uh, it's a weird time to have a book coming out during COVID because, you know, we poets, we're used to a book comes out and we hit the pavement. Yeah. You know, it's like, let's go to bookstores, bars, poetry readings, museums, libraries, and not being able to do that. It's been one of those weird things where like, you know, okay, or is it out there? Are people reading it? What's going on? So I appreciate that. It means a lot coming from you. Um, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, 
let's close out with what what we're reading now, man. I'm I know that you and I are more interested in what you're reading because you are uh, all about that. You read about yeah, yeah, yeah. fifteen books a time. So I, it, it's true. I do. I've been. My wife makes fun of me. I mean, my wife's a scholar and reads a ton, and she's like, "My God, you read too much." It's I do it every waking moment. I'm on lines reading books. You know, if I'm waiting to go out, you know, like I'm reading. So it's a lot of stuff. Recently, I actually been trying to get some fiction in. So I just read The Resisters by Just Jen, which is an amazing book. Um, and then I also read Fiebre Topical by Juliana Delgado Lopera. It's a hilarious book about being like a queer Latina in Miami growing up. And it really captures with humor like you know, when you're a teenager, you think everything is full of it. Everything's BS, but then you don't notice your own BS. I think the book captures that really well in a humorous way. A Puerto Rican writer, Ivelisse Rodriguez's Love War Stories. That's like some really, I love that she's kind of playing on this idea of like the way Latina women are groomed for romance and marriage, mm -hmm. but she turns it on its head to really unpack the ways in that it's culturally damaging to women to put those ideas in them. Um, bunch of poetry, Roy Guzman's Catrachos I've been reading, Ricardo Alberto Malonado's The Life Assignment. You gotta read that book, man. It's so good. And I'm teaching right now, um, Sarah Borjas's uh, Heart Like a Window, Mouth Like a Cliff. And I'm also teaching Ernesto Quinones' Chango's Fire. So I'm kind of returning to that book. One last book I want to bring up, though. I don't know if you've read this, really, because I, want, I wanted to share this one with you anyway. I just read Aftershocks and Disaster, which is oh, the, um, the essays, the post-Maria uh, essays. Yeah, it's an anthology, yeah. and it's edited by Yari Marbonia, who I just saw talk at Cooper last week. Yeah. And she's doing important work for the island, man. She's doing really great work in... Like she's so brilliant at distilling the problems in Puerto Rico that preceded Maria, but that kind of popped open because of Maria. Like if you have no historical context for the situation of Puerto Rico, Yari Marbonia, she's so good at making it clear for people exactly how we got into the situation, whether she's talking about Promesa or the hurricane or the Jones Act or the history of, of you know, the colonization. I highly recommend that book if you haven't got and there's poetry in it too, which I like. Yeah, I have it in the, I have it in the stacks. You know how it works with the stacks. They get it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and everything you write yeah, 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 further, yeah. further and further away from those books, you know. Yeah, especially during the, the semester when you're teaching, <laughs> right? But that's the joy of it. That's the joy of it, I think. I've been trying to read like uh short, short novels as well. So I keep going back to a book like uh Seize the day by uh, by Saul Bellow, you know, and mm. it's a it's a it's a sliver of a book, but there's always there's this one moment in the book where he's uh he's thinking about his life choices, and he says all the life choices that he all his his life was measured by the top ten choices of that those moments where he should have did something, but he didn't, mm. and it kind of wrecks you, you know, th those little moments and wreck you, you know. I think you know there's something to be said for for Bello's classism and and for sure and and some of his his outlooks on multiculturalism and stuff like that. But I think in terms of the of a short novel, it's something I'm interested in as a as a kind of uh, form. Um, uh, the kid, uh, what's the, what's the dude's name? Alejandro Zam Zambra. You you've heard this dude? Oh man, I yeah, love his short yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah. His yeah. short stories are so good. I, another one where he can be very humorous. Yeah. 
but then there's something deeper happening. There's these subtle undercurrents in the in the work. Highly imaginative. Oh, I love his work, man. Yeah, yeah. And then this larger book called Drifts by uh, Kate Zambreno. It's a it's kind of on the auto fiction uh, tip as well, which is another kind of genre that that fascinates me uh, as well. But um, the idea of trying to write a book with distractions, how the notes and the pieces and the notebooks all start to add up and they're mm. kind of overwhelming, but you're looking at the, 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 your life on a granular level, you know, and those kind of things that interest me as well. Um, oh, yeah. So I'm just going to tell people once again, you are listening to Willy Pedono and you've got to check out his book, The Crazy Bunch. And his book that's coming out is re-released Smoking Lovely, as well as Shorty Bonbon. Vincent, man, thank you. And again, congratulations on Tertulia. I recommend it, high, highly recommend it reading. I think, again, as I said, it's a, it's a visionary book. Uh, it's an intentional book. And I, you know, I just love reading work by, by writers who, who, who definitely feel like they're working on a, a level of higher consciousness that we should all aspire to, bro. So congratulations, man. Thank you, man. And I can't wait till we can do this in person. No doubt. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.